0: John chapter 2. This morning's scripture portion is 1 John 2, verses 7 through 11, and is the seventh sermon in a series that we've started this year in this little letter written by John. listen now as i read god's holy word his inerrant word first john 2 verse 7 beloved i am writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you had from the beginning the old commandment is the word that you have heard at the same time But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So far the reading in God's holy word, let us pray. Thank you, God, for your scriptures, and thank you for sending us a preacher to explain them. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see wonderful things in your law. For your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. A people who were walking in darkness have seen a great light, and it is the light of Christ. So we ask that you would shine your light upon us now. In Jesus' name, amen. The older my kids get, the older I feel. And it isn't even always their fault. For instance, this week I found out something a little troubling. Dad rock, spelled D A D R O C K, is a genre in Spotify. It's true. And not only that, it was suggested as something that I especially would enjoy. This is prepared for you, I was told by the algorithm. This offended me. And then I opened up the playlist, and almost half the songs were songs that I had either liked or added to my library. Just a sample. Reelin' in the Years by Steely Dan. Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. More Than a Feeling, Boston, and who could, who could ever leave this song off their playlist? Sharp Dressed Man <laughs> by ZZ Top. In all seriousness, though, we do have a problem here. Being defined as a dad based on the music that you listen to. That's pretty superficial. But how well do we do as men at defining ourselves? Do we do any better as Christian men? There's nothing intrinsically wrong with liking or listening to music. There's also nothing wrong for being known for what you do for a living, what sports teams you like, whether you're married or have kids. But when all you can talk about are these more or less meaningless things, politics, the weather, even theology, can fall into this category. We have a problem. You see, it's so much easier to talk about superficial things like these than it is to talk about what sins are getting the better of us brothers. Talking about our sense of guilt or shame, the regrets that we carry, our failures or our weaknesses. See, we live in a superficial age And that has infiltrated and impacted the conversations we have and the lives we lead as Christians in the church. All these superficial things of the world, I'm sorry to say, are in fact passing away. Dad rock included. Music, sports, the weather, and even to some extent, our theological debates will pass away. But the things of God will shine into eternity. Don't you think that in our relationships with one another, we should strive to shine accordingly? That there should be something of an eternal light working through us as we relate to one another. Our text is a call to love our fellow Christians, to love the brothers to love in light of the coming of Christ. But this is impossible if we never get past the superficial. It's impossible, by the way, if the only time we see each other is for 90 minutes on Sunday mornings. We're never going to get there if we don't actually open up to one another and talk. We're never going to get there if we don't spend time with one another if we don't share our lives together. So I want you to ask yourselves this morning as we get into this text, just as, as, you, as you listen to this morning's sermon, what are the barriers that you personally have at this moment that are preventing you from opening up to another brother or sister in Christ? What are the barriers that are keeping you from being intimate with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents. When you hear me call you to be more committed to the people of this congregation, what resistance do you feel? What comes to your mind when I say, open up, get involved, get to know, spend meaningful, eternally meaningful time talking about eternally meaningful things? What resistance do you feel? Why don't you love your brother more than you do? And that's my sermon title this morning, and I'm putting it in the negative. Why don't you love your brother? Love for the brothers is a, actually a key theme in this book. In my, in my pulpit Bible here, it even mentions that as the major theme in the introduction at the top of the letter, which is provided by the editors of the ESV. It's really one of the reasons I picked to preach this book. I think that we need to get better as a church. Broadly speaking, we're talking about evangelicals, reformed people, the PCA and Mercy Hill. We need to get better at loving one another. We're really strong on doctrine. We're strong on it. I mean, I've got a black belt in doctrine. I'm dangerous. And we need to be strong on doctrine. I mean, we live in an in an age where theology and and catechisms and confessions are are treated if they're treated at all, they're treated lightly and even dismissively. So we, you know, we're going through the Apostles' Creed, but sometimes our practice of loving one another falls short of our exalted theology. How are we doing as a church? Why don't you love your brother more? I'm proposing two answers to this question from our text of scripture this morning. My hope is that as we answer the question together, that God will lead us as a fellowship into a deeper, more God-honoring relationships with one another. The men with other men, the women with other women, and all of us, men and women, young and old, together. So the first reason I think you don't love your brother more is that you have forgotten or you forget what is true about you. Why don't you love your brother? You forget what is true about you. Now, truth is a very important category to John. If you take a computer and do a survey of all the uses of the word true or truth in the New Testament, just the word itself, the highest concentration per word of the word truth or true is in 1 John. The second highest concentration is in the Gospel of John. And so we've seen in going through 1 John how how John in his letter to the church he pastors is assuming you've read his Gospel. And I actually encourage you, if if you need a devotional plan, while we're going through 1 John and Second and Third John this year, to slowly read through the Gospel of John, or multiple times read through the Gospel of John. It would be very illuminating for you. It's one of John's favorite words. It occurs 75 times in all of his writings. That's because for John, what is true is very important. There are Christians in his church. They've actually left the church. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. There are Christians and Christian leaders in the church or the churches that John is writing to in this letter that were smudging or blurring the line between what is true and what is false, in particular, I think they were talking a good game, but they weren't living it out in a way that was, was resembling Jesus. Hence, last week, if you, need, you need to walk as Jesus walked if, if you say that you believe. But there's another reason why truth is important for John. He didn't just want his church to understand that these teachers or these prominent Christian leaders were hypocrites. He, he did he also wanted to give his readers a grid or a guide by which they could assess whether they themselves are true. See, you as, as, as sheep, as flock in the church, need to be able to know whether the person who's teaching you or preaching at you is true. But you also need to know if you are true, you need to have that ability to assess your own life and have assurance that you're doing what God wants you to do. So when you said that you believed in Jesus, when you heard the gospel preached, at the very same time, this is what you heard. Love your brother. It's a package deal. You can't take salvation from Christ and then not love your brother. It's impossible. Do you remember the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God is repairing and restoring. He's renewing all that's broken in the world and in our lives through Jesus Christ. The gospel is the promise of God that he loves you even though you were at one time his sworn enemy, walking in darkness, ignorant of God, worshiping the creation that he made rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In that old mode of life, Titus 3.3, you hated others and were being hated by others. Now, I know that in the world and in our worldly ways, we have kind of a slick way of doing things. We don't walk around hating people. That's a no-no. So we interact with people according to the rules and we say the right things and do the right things. We've got to all act together. But the Bible calls that hatred. It's human manipulation. It's superficial interaction. It is not what man was made to do or who we were made to be. Following society's rules for interpersonal engagement is not the biblical definition of love, I assure you. And so when you hear me say before Christ, and if you're not a believer, if you hear me say that you hate people and are being hated by people, you may not understand what I'm saying because as our text tells us, you are blind. We were blind. We thought this old way of living was perfectly logical. And then the lights went on and we got eyeballs to boot. We had no idea That the way we were living in our marriages, the way we were parenting, the way we were doing our jobs was absolutely futile and it was destructive so that we can agree with the Apostle Paul in Titus 3 when he says, you hate people and are hated by people. Even as you're helping the little old lady across the street. Man, if that isn't anchored in love for Almighty God, it is hatred. It's idolatry. Think about that. But the good news is when the kindness of God our Savior, Titus 3, 4, appeared, you were saved not because your righteous deeds, but because of his mercy through the power of the Holy Spirit. When God showed his love to you, he poured out his Holy Spirit upon you and gave you the hope of eternal life. And in that new mode... You love the brothers. This is a pivotal moment for all humanity and it's a pivotal moment in each one of our lives when we heard the good news. Jesus says, when you're born again, you become sons of God and because of this privilege, you begin to experience the life of God and are enabled to live out that life, eternal life, lived out in your relationships. So there something heavy and heavenly and glorious and joyful and deep and hopeful about all your interactions with every person you meet every single day as a believer. That's why we say Christianity is not a religion. I mean, there are religious things that we do every Sunday. We come to to worship. We We give offerings, we take the Lord's Supper, we make promises and commitments. These aren't antithetical to Christianity, it's just not the heart of it. The heart of Christianity is a transformed relationship with the living God and with every other person you meet. Amazing grace. Do you know it? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. If you haven't heard it recently, here's a good summary of the gospel. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's one statement, one summary. And the second is, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while the world and its passions and fancies are not eternal but passing away, which is what our text says in verse 8, we are committed, as we heard last week, to walking as Jesus walked, 1 John 2, 6, and loving as God loves. So Jesus himself sets the standard in Matthew 5, 43. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he says this, so that you may be sons of your father is in heaven in short you are called to love your brother because that's what sons of God do have you forgotten what is true of you why don't we love our brothers we don't know what's true of us that's why it's true because Jesus loved you when you were hateful. Hating him. That's a little strong, don't you think? Not according to Scripture. It's true because the gospel that you heard when you first believed, this gospel that I've repeated this morning, changes people. It makes people new. The goal of this morning's sermon is that you would not leave the same. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. That's what Scripture says. But it's more than that. Because the word new creature can also be phrased, there is the new creation. It's like you step into another world. And you carry that world wherever you go. This newness is a new status, which theologians call justification. If God is a judge, justification, your new status is that you are no longer guilty, but innocent. You are no longer condemned, but you're free. Jesus Christ has procured your justification, and this status is changed from guilty to innocent. It's it's in the book the book of life, from the book of death. And we receive it by faith. This newness also extends, though, to your disposition. We'll call this sanctification. Not only are you uh, positionally, status-wise, are you a new, is there a new truth about you, but your disposition begins to change in accordance with that new status. He declares you to be holy in justification, and you begin to experience holiness in sanctification. You start to live differently. You start to think differently. You're not as hopeless as you were before. You're not wasting your money on the things that you wasted it on before, and you're more open about how you spend your money, particularly with your spouse. You're now a son or daughter of the king, a bloodbought specimen of the king's redeemed army, a trophy of redemption. And you're called to live like this. This is your new disposition. And if you needed any more proof that it's true of you, look at the first word of my text. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved. Beloved. It tells us what's true about us. John appeals to you who read and to you who hear to do in accordance with who you are. Beloved shows that you are not only loved by God, but it's a name for the people of God supremely precious because it's the very term that God himself, the Father used to describe his son when he was baptized, this is my beloved. And it's also the term when Peter was confused and he was honoring the great prophets, Moses and Elijah equally with Jesus, God singled out Jesus and said, this is my beloved. To be the beloved son of the Father means you have been chosen, selected. To be beloved means that you have the Father's delight, Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. God delights in his beloved. He has chosen his beloved. He protects his beloved. He is the champion of his beloved, and he is friends and close, intimate With his beloved and this is only true of Jesus and yet John here calls you beloved echoing the very title term of endearment that the father gave to his son is now applied in scripture to Christians who are beloved by adoption So why don't we love our brothers if this is what's true about us? Why are we stuck on superficialities in our relationships with others in our life, but especially in the church, if we are beloved children of God? Why do you struggle to make a commitment to the body of Christ, Jesus' family, if you're truly a sinner saved by grace? What's holding you back? if it's true about you why isn't it really obviously true about you why is it sort of like kind of true and not kind of true and true today and not true to tomorrow and true in the morning and not true in the evening and true when things are going well and then when things aren't going well it is not true that's my life by the way i'm going to discuss this more a little later but Two areas I think are crucial for you to consider as you're thinking about why is this, unforgiveness towards others or towards yourself. A lack of forgiveness. When you're holding on what the old King James calls an ought, when you're holding on to bitterness towards someone, if you have an ought against someone, that is, that is a, an intimacy killer in the church. It, it's the fastest way to kill a church and to turn it into a religious gathering of zombies. But if if you feel unforgiven, if, if, if you feel that you've sinned so far that you are no longer worthy to sit in this noble chamber of saints, that's also a church killer especially shame and guilt over unrepentant or secret sin especially that these are crucial bottlenecks that keep the fellowship and life of God from having a freer flow in the family of God in, in pruning trees they talk about the canopy and you want it not to be too dense you want to trim out in in a shrub so that the air can move on all those beautiful leaves and our sin just grows up like wild shoots in a tangled mass of a shrub that even the light of day can't penetrate so we're looking this morning at the first and it's the first of many references in John at the importance of loving our brother and as a reminder, brother is not someone who's related to you by sharing a common birth mother. These are brothers by another mother. <laughs> family members made family by a spiritual relationship called the new birth. People who are very different in many ways can be brothers in Christ through our common connection with Jesus. And Jesus is teaching us this morning about loving our brothers. And we're asking, why don't you love your brother? One reason is that you don't realize it's true of you. But the second reason you don't love your brother, it isn't new for you. It's not new for you. Look at our text. John is playing off this idea of new and old. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, he says in verse 7 but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So right there we know that new and old don't refer to when he says beginning, we're not talking about the beginning, you know, Genesis. We're talking about the beginning of faith, the first time they heard the gospel and believed it. And John is intentionally He's used the word beginning already in our, in our letter. He plays off of both of those. But what's new is not that they hadn't heard it before, is my point. They had heard it. That's the first kind of newness here is something that describes something you've never heard before. Well, they had heard this commandment to love, they had heard that before. But the second kind of new is something that you've heard before, but you kind of forgot about it. And in that sense, when you hear it again, it's like, oh, yeah, right. Something new can be something that you know, that you've heard, but you struggle to live out in a meaningful way. And so, John is saying that love for your brother is not a new command in the first sense, because you've heard it before. There's no preaching of the gospel of Jesus without preaching love for the brothers. Jesus says in John 13 that it's a new commandment. Well, it really was new for him. When Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you so you should love one another, John 13, 34, it's new because he's combining two things that hadn't been combined before. Deuteronomy chapter 6, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, yes. And way down into Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself and Jesus is going, nope, they go together. In fact, the whole law can be summarized by love for God and love for your brother. This was a new combination when Jesus taught it. It also had a new quality. It was deeper, more selfless, more sacrificial than it had ever been before. People had gotten accustomed to just doing the minimum, you know, loving your neighbor and only your neighbor. This is how Jesus' disciples were thinking when they rebuked the woman who was washing his feet with her tears. She was going beyond the minimum. This is why the men resisted the miracle on the hillside when the 5,000 were hanging on Jesus' every word and disciples said, send them home. They need to get some food. He says, no, you give them something to eat. He loved them. He had had compassion on them, a sheep without a shepherd, and so he took five loaves and two fishes, and by a miraculous provision, not only all 5,000 men were fed, their wives and children, and there were baskets full left over for each of the unbelieving disciples who didn't think it was possible. Think about how Jesus planned to go to the cross, and Peter said, no, Lord, not that much love. And Jesus rebuked Peter and called him Satan because he was being so stingy. He had to show them this love for them, love to the uttermost, love to the death. It's a new quality of love. And it has a new extent as well. The love that they were to show, the love that Jesus showed, didn't just go to Jewish men or males. It included women too which was socially transgressive at the time. It wasn't just for Samaritans, shocking enough, but for Gentiles, full-on Gentiles, like depraved tax collectors, prostitutes, and freaks in tombs running around naked, babbling things, possessed with demons. And Jesus went beyond excessively to that extent, he loved them. What I'm saying back to our text in First John, is that the readers hearers, you have already heard this. You know how Jesus loves. What's new, what should be new for you is that you need to be renewed in this love, today, this morning. It's new in the sense that there's a fresh experience of love that's needed for the church. Commentator Candlish puts it this way, although doctrinal Christianity is always old, and rightly so, experimental Christianity is ever new. Now, this is an old use of the word experiments. We're not talking about white lab coats here. We're talking about, I know that Jesus loves me. I'm experiencing his love for me, and therefore I'm going to live it out in practical, meaningful ways in your life. You're going to see it by the way you relate with me. We need to live out what we've received and believe. Look at verse 8. At the same time, I know it's old, he's saying. On the other hand, it's new. And how is it new? It's new because it's true in him and in you Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I think this is the key verse to understand this entire passage that's before us this morning. One commentator paraphrased this this portion in this, which which has been realized in him and in you. So the word true replace that with the word realized. Here's my version of it, which has been fully and perfectly realized in God the eternal Son, who's ascended and seated at the right hand of God, but isn't quite true enough for you. But don't be discouraged. The darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. It needs to be true of us. It can be true of us. It will be true of us. The former manner of life had us in a double bind, double trouble. I mentioned this earlier. We were not only in the dark, but we were blind, we couldn't see. So even if the lights were on, we couldn't see. This is why an unbeliever can come to a church service where the lights are on, so to speak, and not get anything out of it. You need both the lights to be on and new eyes. And so the hatred that's described in our, in our text in verse 11 springs from or stems from this double bind of being both blind and walking in darkness. And there's a, there's a third one, we call it a triple bind because it describes not knowing. This is an ignorance as well. You see, growth in the Christian faith often brings tremendous growth in knowledge and insight into the scriptures. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, it is not your intellectual opinion that proclaims what you truly are. It is possible to be perfectly orthodox and unloving." End quote. The old preacher means that our orthodoxy is of no value if we do not love our brothers. It is possible to defend the faith but then deny it by the very way that you live. I, Howard Marshall, suggests that we might translate verse eight like this. It is fulfilled in him, and it is being fulfilled in you and me. Is it true of you? Is it new for you? Paul says that it is the remaining sin in our lives that keeps the light of God's love from shining as it should. Do you know this phrase? I do that which I hate, and that which I want to do, I do not do. Romans chapter seven. I began the sermon this morning with the complaint about men's conversation. Too often, brothers settle for what is superficial and empty, not what really matters. In the book, Bond of Brothers, which, by the way, I'm reading with a few other pastors, author Wes Yoder writes, quote, friendship, spiritual friendship, is the life-giving core among all healthy relationships with men. What's at the core? of all healthy relationships with men, is life-giving spiritual friendships. And we don't get there just talking about sports. We just don't. How do we get there? We get there through Christ, knowing what's true of us, knowing that Christ was all anguish, that I might be all joy, knowing that Christ was cast off that I might be brought in. Christ was trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, a thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made ashamed that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal life. This prayer continues. My Savior wept, that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. He groaned, that I might have endless song, endured all pain, that I might have unfading health, bore a thorned crown, that I might have a glory diadem, bowed his head, that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach, that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death, that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired that I would forever live. That's the friend we have in Christ. And that's the love we are to show for the brothers. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning's text. We thank you for its challenge to love the brothers to rest and abide in the love of God, the love God has for us and our love for God in response, and then to live that out, not in stingy, formalistic, shameful ways, superficial, but in deep, meaningful, intimate ways that truly reflects the grace that we have received Lord, as we think about the brothers and sisters of the church as we think about ourselves we know the needs that we have and we know where we're holding back so I pray that you would move through us send your Holy Spirit that what is true might be new in this fellowship we ask it through Christ who gave his life that we might be his people. We ask it that others might see the love we have for one another and glorify God who is in heaven. And we ask it because there are some who do not yet believe that need to receive this love in order to know that God is real. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the mercy hill sermon podcast if you'd like to learn more about us please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. we meet every sunday at 10 a.m at the church house located at 300 university boulevard in glassboro off of harvard avenue adjacent to the j harvey rogers school and near rowan university we'd love for you to join us please see our website for directions Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.